You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. We are currently into our series on James Cook and knee-deep into his first voyage, in which he will circumnavigate the world. Cook had already reached Tahiti, gotten the astronomers a chance to catch the transit of Venus, mapped the region today we call the Society Islands, and ventured south in search of Terra Australis. He had not found the latter, and we left him last time heading towards New Zealand. Notes for today are simple. Go to explorerspodcast.com if you want a map of Cook's voyage. That is it. So Endeavour would plow through the choppy waters of the South Pacific in September of 1769. The crew was thrilled to have left behind the stormy and frigid Southern Ocean. On October 5th of 1769, lookout Nicholas Young sighted land, the first the crew had seen in many months. Because of his keen eyesight, Young would earn himself a gallon of rum as a reward. Cook and his crew had reached New Zealand, the first Europeans to do so since Abel Tasman over 100 years earlier. A couple of notes. First, if you don't know the basic makeup of New Zealand, it consists of two main islands, the North Island and the South Island. Cook had sighted the eastern coast of the North Island. It was mountainous and rugged. Tasman, by the way, had never gone down the eastern coast of New Zealand, so this was all new stuff to the British. Second note, some people believe that New Zealand was part of Terra Australis. Naturalist Joseph Banks was excited about what lay before them, writing, quote, All hands seem to agree that this is the continent we are in search of. End quote. Despite Banks's enthusiasm, Cook was skeptical that this was the southern continent. Endeavour would have to fight some unfavorable winds, so it took a few days for the ship to actually reach the coast. Cook arrived at a small bay next to a river that was part of a much larger bay, which today we call Hawke's Bay. It is located, roughly, halfway up the coast of the North Island. The first thing the British took note of were signs of habitation. Cook wrote, quote, we saw on the bay several canoes, people upon the shore, and some houses in the country. End quote. Native people were a good sign. It meant that there was likely food and water, which the ship needed badly. But any encounters with indigenous peoples were a risky affair. Cook would lead two boats ashore, landing on the bank of the river. These natives were the Maori, and many were marked by distinctive tattoos. Abel Tasman had encountered some Maori on his voyage, and things had not gone well. The Maori were a fierce and protective people, and several of Tasman's men had been killed and eaten. Cook and his men knew these stories, so they were wary. So when Cook and his heavily armed marines came ashore, the Maori fled. Cook and others on his team went to examine the huts of the Maori, and while they were doing so, shots rang out. 
Cook rushed out to find a dead native near the boats. Apparently, a group of Maori had approached the boats, and the guards had fired a couple of warning shots to scare them away. But the men had pressed forward, raising their weapons in an aggressive manner. A guard had thus shot one of the natives, the rest fleeing. The dead man's name, by the way, was later identified as T. Merrill. I am not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Anyhow, T. Merrill was the first Maori killed by Europeans. The next day would bring more drama between the English and the Maori. A large group of the latter would gather on the beach at a spot where their fellow tribesmen had been shot. They were shouting at the British in a warlike manner. Cook responded by sailing his boats toward the shore, landing on the opposite side of the river from the small village. Cook then got out of the boat and led a group of men to the bank in an attempt to talk to the Maori from across the river. Tupaya, the native brought from Tahiti, acted as translator. Tupaya, by the way, understood the Maori, who spoke a Polynesian language similar to the people in Tahiti and the surrounding islands. Through Tupaya, Cook tried to reason with the Maori, saying they wanted to trade and be friends. The Maori continued to gesture aggressively, and then one of the men would dive into the river, swimming towards the British. Others followed, and soon a host of men were splashing across the river. Cook had a group of men around him, including Joseph Banks, Charles Green, the astronomer, and Tupaya. As the first of the Maori approached, Cook tried to hand them gifts, including nails and beads, but the Maori appeared only interested in the muskets of the British, no doubt fascinated with them after seeing the death they could produce the previous day. And then one of the Maori reached towards Charles Green and took his sword out of its sheath. Sensing things were getting out of hand, Cook gave the word to fire. Banks fired first, and then others. One Maori man was killed, three others wounded. The rest fled in the face of such weapons, which they had never seen in their lives. Cook ordered his men back to the ship and elected to get out of there. He wanted to find better anchorage and friendlier natives. But it wasn't long before Endeavor came upon a pair of canoes, seven men out fishing. Cook figured that this was his chance. He'd bring the men on board, give them a bunch of cool things, and send them back to their people. They'd see the British only wanted to be friends. Well, that was easier said than done. The Maori fought back when the British tried to manhandle them, and soon shots were fired. Four natives would be killed, the others captured. Cook would have these captives treated well, giving them gifts including cloth and beads. They were then released. All in all, it had not been a good start to their time in New Zealand. Of the day, Joseph Banks would write, quote, And thus ended the most disagreeable day my life had yet seen, that such may never return to embitter future reflections. End quote. By the way, Cook would name this place Poverty Bay because he got nothing from coming here. Endeavor would ultimately head north, up the coast. Along the way, there were numerous encounters with the Maori, some good, some bad. The Maori were unpredictable, friendly and agreeable one moment, then aggressive and warlike the next. More than once, the British resorted to firing their four-pound cannons over the heads of the natives to frighten them off when they got aggressive. So north, along the New Zealand coast, went the British. It was a very twisty and bendy route, Cook mapping the coastline as they went. Due to the rough weather and dangerous shoals, Endeavour often had to stay well out to sea, but she would approach the shore whenever it was safe. On November 8th, Endeavour would spot what is now called Cook's Bay. It's around 400 miles or so, or 640 kilometers, to the north of where the British had landed a month earlier. Charles Green, the astronomer, wanted to go ashore and observe the transit of Mercury. As you can probably guess, the transit of Mercury is when Mercury passes between the Earth and the Sun. The phenomenon occurs 13 to 14 times every 100 years, much more common than the transit of Venus, but not exactly an everyday occurrence. No matter, Green, along with Lieutenant Zachary Hicks, went ashore and made their observations, everything going well. However, as this happened, the British were trading with the locals. 
It was then that one man tried to make off with a length of cloth. Frustrated by the thieving that was going on, Lieutenant John Gore shot the man. A few days later, Lieutenant Hicks had another native flogged for stealing an hourglass. Cook was not thrilled by all of this, but to be honest, the patience he and his men had displayed in Tahiti was waning. The aggressive and unpredictable Maori had put the crew on edge and they were tired of the constant pilfering of items. It was noted that grapeshot was now the rule when dealing with unruly natives. Grapeshot, in case you didn't know, consists of small metal pellets. It's often used in cannons and can be very effective when used against infantry. In muskets and pistols, it wasn't that deadly, but it could kill. At the least, getting hit with some shot would leave a nasty mark on a person. By early December, Endeavour reached the northern tip of New Zealand, Cape Reinga, which had been Tasman's last landfall on the New Zealand mainland. At this point, the weather and coastal conditions were difficult, even dangerous. The rounding of the Cape was a feat of seamanship. Richard Huff, in his biography of James Cook, wrote this about Cook's rounding the Cape. Quote, at this doubling of the northernmost point of New Zealand, we see Cook the navigator at his finest. In fearsomely high seas, the rollers pounding in from the west, in gales, and for a while a full hurricane of like of which he had never before experienced, and with rain driving horizontally, and with so many torn sails that the sailmakers could scarcely keep up with the arduous work, it took all of Cook's skills to keep the endeavor from foundering. End quote. And with the rounding of the North Island, Cook and Endeavour headed south, down the western coast. By the way, I do have one interesting sidetrack I want to share. On December 12th, a French ship, the St. Jean-Baptiste, under the command of Jean-Francois-Marie de Surville, had reached the western coast of the North Island, not far from the tip. They had arrived in New Zealand just two months after Cook had landed, although on the other side of the island. Surville would spend only a few days on the western side of the island, before sailing a short way up the coast and rounding the tip of the North Island. The Endeavour and the St. Jean-Baptiste had thus passed each other right around the time they were rounding the tip of the North Island, coming within 50 miles of each other. Surville and his ship traveled a short way down the eastern coast before settling in for a couple of weeks, doing repairs and collecting food and water on shore. They eventually got into a fight with the Maori, burning 30 huts and seizing a chief. On December 31, 1769, they would depart, striking out east. Using favorable winds, Surville would reach South America, but his crew was in bad shape due to scurvy. Desperate for supplies, the French captain would go to a Spanish port. However, when he and a few men took a small boat ashore with the intention of asking for aid, the boat capsized and Surville drowned. The St. John Baptiste would ultimately be seized by the Spanish, her crew detained for more than two years. When they finally got back to France, only 66 of the original 173 men were alive. And that ends the sidetrack of Jean-Francois-Marie de Surville and his ship, the St. Jean-Baptiste, the third group of Europeans to ever reach New Zealand. Endeavour would spend Christmas of 1769 off the coast of the North Island of New Zealand. The seas were, for once, calm, and the men celebrated by drinking. As 1770 came around, the ship continued south, fighting difficult winds the entire way. By the middle of the month, Cook knew he needed to give the men and the ship a break. Now, as you sail down the western coast of the North Island, the coast takes a strong turn to the east. There you find a large body of water called Queen Charlotte Sound. Cook went into the Sound and on January 16th anchored the ship in a cove. Here, Cook had the Endeavour beached, and thus a full refit of the ship began. By the way, this was an advantage of the design of Endeavour, with its relatively flat bottom. Anyhow, leaks were caulked and the bottom was cleaned and coated with tar, oil, tallow, and resin. 
cask after cask of water was collected, as well as timber. There were, of course, interactions with the natives, but those went pretty well. On an excursion up the Sound, Cook and Joseph Banks stopped and had a meal with the Maori family. There they found a basket of human bones. The Maori explained that they only ate the flesh of those defeated in battle. This was not the only sign of cannibalism amongst the Maori. Banks was fascinated by it, and when the British came upon a canoe with four human heads in it, he bought one. The men were, as you can imagine, freaked out a bit by the practice. They had read accounts of cannibals in the journals of fabled Tasman, but here they saw the results of the practice, and it made them wary. And so, while the refitting of the ship was underway, Cook, Banks, and Dr. Solander, and a small party of seamen, would venture to an island further up the Sound. Now, I want to mention that Abel Tasman had, over a hundred years earlier, not gone this far into the Sound, and thus he had not seen what was about to occur. The British would march to the top of a high hill on the island, which today is called Arapawa Island, to collect botanical samples. But from atop the hill, Cook discovered something very illuminating. He saw a passage to the east, leading to a wide expanse of open sea. The passage was only 22 kilometers, or 14 miles, wide at its narrowest point. It was then that Cook knew that he had just circumnavigated an island, which we now call the North Island. And he was becoming more and more convinced that the land to the south was an island as well. The strait, by the way, is now called the Cook Strait. It separates the North and South Islands. And so the men continued the refit of the ship and collected food and water and supplies. They would depart Queen Charlotte Sound on February 7, 1770. However, before leaving, Cook, along with some of his men and a few locals, went to an island at the entrance of the Sound and climbed a high hill. Here a cairn was built with some silver coins, musket balls, and beads put inside. Then a flag was raised on a post, and Cook claimed the land in the name of his majesty. To cap off the ceremony, a bottle of wine was opened and shared amongst the men. Cook gave the empty bottle to one of the Maori, who was thrilled at the gift. Tupaya spoke with the natives and extracted promises that they would not bother the cairn or the flag. Tupaya, by the way, had proved to be invaluable to Cook due to his ability to speak with the Maori. For the next month, Endeavour would go down the western coast of the South Island. The weather got more tempestuous and the temperatures dropped. The shoreline was rugged and uninviting, even by New Zealand standards. On land, the ship spied great mountains, some so high they were snow-capped even in the summer. And then, on March 4th, the coastline turned east. Endeavour would follow the coastline, and then on March 10th, she would round the southern tip of New Zealand. For Cook, the answer was now in. This was not Terra Australis. New Zealand consisted of two major islands. With that figured out, Cook was determined to continue up the eastern coast to fully map the southern island and put aside any ideas that this was Terra Australis. Endeavour would reach the eastern side of the Cook Strait on March 27th. Cook had now circled most of the North Island and all of the South Island. And with that, Cook had, essentially, completed his mission. He had gotten to Tahiti, he had searched for Terra Australis, and now he had uncovered the mysteries of New Zealand, including charting almost its entire coastline. It was time to head home. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To return to England, Cook could have gone east and rounded the tip of South America again. This was the shortest route, but instead he elected to go west towards New Holland, a.k.a. Australia. The eastern shore of Australia had not been mapped by any European, so what was there, no one knew. For Cook, this appealed to him. Endeavour was still in good shape and his crew healthy. Once they investigated Australia, they would go through the Torres Strait and head to the Dutch settlement of Batavia, which today is Jakarta in Indonesia. From there, it would be back to England. Circumnavigating the world would be a big feather in the cap of Cook's accomplishments. And so, west it was, through the Cook Strait, which, by the way, is considered one of the most dangerous stretches of water in the world due to a combination of conflicting currents, tides, and strong winds that all come together to create extreme conditions. But Cook and Endeavour would maneuver through the strait and head west on March 31, 1770. For 20 days, Endeavour sailed into the unknown, covering 1,300 miles, or 2,100 kilometers, over what today is called the Tasman Sea. Due to strong winds and storms, the Endeavour was pushed a little north of where Cook had been aiming. And then at 6 a.m. on April 19th, Lieutenant Zachary Hicks climbed the rigging of Endeavour and let out a shout, Land Ahoy! Endeavour was at the lower edge of Australia's eastern coast. Cook would call this land New South Wales. Due to powerful storms, Cook could not anchor Endeavour anywhere, and the currents pushed the ship north and away from the coast. And so Cook and Endeavour headed up the eastern coast of Australia. It would be 2,000 miles, or 3,200 kilometers, of territory never seen by any European. Now, one thing the eastern coast does not have, unlike New Zealand, is a lot of natural harbors. It frustrated Cook as he wanted to get ashore and replenish his food, water, and timber. It wasn't until April 28, 1770, that the weather calmed and Endeavour finally found a suitable bay to drop anchor. From the ship, Cook looked at the region before him and found promise. The countryside was diverse, with marshlands, grasslands, and forests. The bay offered a safe place for a ship. Also, fish were plentiful, the men later catching 300 pounds of it in a single day. The waters were also rich in oysters and clams. It was a sharp contrast to New Zealand, which was rugged and mountainous. Of it all, Cook wrote, quote, The whole country, or at least a great part of it, might be cultivated. End quote. It wasn't hard to see the promise the place had for colonization. Cook named this place Botany Bay because of the large number of plant specimens Bank and Solander would collect. About a decade later, Joseph Banks would recommend the area to be used as a penal colony, and thus it would become the first European settlement in Australia in 1788. The actual city that grew up around the bay is Sydney. Of course, Australia was far from empty, and Cook knew it from the start. He and his men spotted smoke, an indication of habitation. And it wasn't long before people were seen as well. The crew was surprised to find the natives, the aborigines, to be dark, almost black. In fact, at first glance, Cook wasn't sure if they were black or just wearing black clothing. It turns out they were almost completely naked. As soon as the ship was secured, the boats headed to the shore to collect water, food, and supplies. 
Isaac Smith, Cook's wife's cousin, would be the first man from the ship to set foot on this new land. By the way, I have in the past inadvertently referred to Smith as Elizabeth Cook's nephew, when he was, in fact, her cousin. The Aborigines actively ignored the British, and when attempts were made to engage with them, they were a failure. They did not understand Tupaya and responded by making threatening gestures, such as waving spears in the air. Some even threw stones at the newcomers. Cook observed the primitive nature of the natives, noting how their crude canoes were inferior to the Maori. The English seemed to have a special disdain for the Aborigines. I think much of this comes from the view of them as primitive and nomadic. They hadn't built cities or cultivated lands. The truth is that they survived by adapting to what the land gave them, moving from place to place in order to sustain themselves. No matter, the British saw naked nomads who had no sort of culture, basic savages. So while Cook and his crew took care of reprovisioning the ship and making minor repairs, the expedition's scientific team had a field day, collecting all sorts of new specimens. Here you get the first European descriptions of the dingo and the kangaroo. Side note, at this time, Forby Sutherland, one of Endeavour's crewmen, would become the first British subject to die in Australia. The cause of death? Tuberculosis. Cook would eventually depart Botany Bay and move north, surveying the coast as he did. The further north Endeavour went, the land became more barren. Also, good harbors were hard to find. It didn't stop the botanists, who continued to go wild collecting specimens whenever they got the chance to go ashore. Now, I want to stop and talk about an incident that occurred at this time, one that greatly disturbed Cook. On May 22nd, Richard Orton, the captain's clerk, would drink so heavily he would pass out. While he was incapacitated, someone cut off the man's ears as well as his clothing. This was an odd and troubling incident. Cutting off a drunk man's clothing could be viewed as a cruel prank, but cutting off a man's ears was malicious. This was payback. As I said, Cook was taken aback by the incident. He considered himself the kind of man who was in tune with the mood of his crew. He didn't want to lose them for fear discipline would erode. Now, why Orton was attacked in such a way, no one ever found out. But the truth is that the men had been together for nearly two years, and it was only a matter of time before petty jealousies and spats rose to the surface. These sorts of things can undermine the captain of a ship, and Cook knew he needed to stay on top of such problems. No matter, about halfway up Australia's east coast, north of modern-day Brisbane, the waters become trickier to navigate, and that's because Endeavour entered a chain of coral reefs. This is Australia's Great Barrier Reef, and it runs up the Australian coast for more than 2,300 kilometers, or 1,400 miles, and covers an area of nearly 350,000 square kilometers, or 133,000 square miles. It is comprised of nearly 300 individual reefs and 900 islands. When Cook entered this area, he had no idea what he was getting himself into. He would eventually call this place a great labyrinth, and that's an understatement. The Great Barrier Reef is one of the seven natural wonders of the world, and wildly dangerous for any vessel that doesn't have proper charts and maps. And you know what? Cook had none of those things. He was going into this massive maze, not knowing when it would ever end. All it would take was one mistake, one unfriendly current, one unforgiving storm, and Endeavour could end up having her hull torn apart by the sharp coral reefs. Cook's luck would hold for a while as the ship moved slowly north up the coast, but not even the careful and meticulous approach of Cook and his crew could keep Endeavour safe forever. On the evening of June 10th, about 16 kilometers or 10 miles offshore, Endeavour would come to a grinding halt as she struck a reef, and she wasn't moving as the coral had cut deep into the ship's bottom. Cook, who had never been in a shipwreck, reacted quickly and with admirable calm. It was said that he was out barking orders even before putting on his pants. 
Time was critical for Endeavor as she was at high water. The longer she sat on the reef, the lower the water would get and the chances of getting off the reef diminishing. The sails were taken in and boats launched to survey the damage. In short order, cables were tied between the boats in Endeavor and an attempt was made to pull the ship off the reef. No luck. Coral, by the way, is one of the worst possible materials a ship can run into. It is sharp and jagged, and when stuck, the waves will rock the ship, causing it to grind against the razor-like coral reef, basically chewing itself to pieces. Cook understood that he needed to lighten the load of the ship so it could free itself from the reef. Thus he ordered anything not necessary to be thrown overboard. The crew worked feverishly into the next day, getting rid of empty casks, iron ballast, old cargo, stored water, and even six of the cannons. Fifty tons of stuff went overboard, or one-seventh of Endeavor's weight. The morning high tide came around 11 a.m., but it was still not enough. Endeavor could not free itself from the reef. They would have to hope conditions would change by the evening tide. Cook began to fear the worst. His ship was 10 miles off the coast, and it was leaking, forcing a team of men to operate two of the ship's pumps nonstop in 15-minute shifts. And Cook knew that there would be no help for a ship, not here in the middle of a big blank on the map. He wrote about the prospects of being shipwrecked on the bleak Australian coast, even talking about building a ship from the wreckage of Endeavour. Things did not look good. By the late afternoon of June 11th, the tides began to rise again. However, by 5 p.m., the ship's third and final pump was put to work as the water was coming in at a dangerously fast rate. And then, at around 9 in the evening, Endeavour righted itself at high tide. But at the same time, the ship's intake of water increased. Cook knew he had to act. He decided to try and heave Endeavour off the reef. At around 10 p.m., roughly 24 hours after striking the reef, the ship's smaller boats attempted to haul Endeavour off the reef. And it would work. This was outstanding, but now another problem arose. Water was pouring into the ship's hull, and it wasn't long before more than four feet of water was in the hold. The ship was sinking. The men were working the pumps for their lives. Cook needed to seal the hole in Endeavour's hull. For that, midshipman Jonathan Monkhouse presented an idea. It's called fathering. To father something means to cover a breach in the hull or boat with a sail or cloth. In this case, a heavy sail was chosen for the job. So what happened was the men swam under the ship with the sail, spread out the sail, and placed it over the biggest hole. Ropes were then attached to the sail and then pulled tight up on the deck and secured. It's like putting a surgical mask over the hole. Once the sail was placed over the gap, Globs of oakum were pressed into the breach between the sail and the hull as a crude sort of caulking. Oakum is a tarred rope used on ships for this exact purpose. All of this does not stop a leak, but it can slow it tremendously. Monkhouse's plan worked beautifully, and Endeavour was out of danger, at least for the time being. If it had not worked, the ship would likely have gone down, the men taking to the smaller boats and making for the Australian coast. But that was not the case due to Monkhouse's fine work. It does, as noted, mean the ship wasn't taking on water. It's just now the leakage was much more manageable. Of it all, Cook, who rarely gave praise in his journals to his men, would write, quote, He, meaning Monkhouse, executed it very much to my satisfaction, end quote. As I said, that's high praise from Cook. So yay, the hole in the ship was plugged. That means all is good, right? Well, no, of course not. And that's because it was time for storms to hit. Endeavour would have to endure high winds and rains for several days, and it was nearly impossible to get closer to land. When the storms finally broke, Endeavour made for the Australian coast. The ship could not survive much longer at sea in the condition she was in. And so for days, the crew battled the leaks, the pumps never stopping. 
Different sources talk about these tense days, praising Cook and the crew for their calm and professional approach. On June 17th, Endeavour would reach the Australian coast and enter a natural harbour along a steep beach. This place is now called Cooktown. The entire crew went to work. Tents were set up on shore as well as a forge. Equipment was unloaded as well as all the ship's coal. And then, at high tide, Endeavour was hauled ashore, bow first, the stern still in the water. The bow was the front of the ship, the stern the back. Again, the flat-bottom design of Endeavour was coming in handy. Anyhow, with the bottom of the ship exposed, the damage could now be fully assessed, and it was worse than expected. There were multiple holes, and coral had ripped into many timbers. Cook described it as such, quote, as if the damage had been done by the hands of a man with a blunt-edged tool, end quote. In addition to the holes in the hull, a large section of the false keel was completely gone. The false keel, by the way, protects the main keel. It was bad, but repairable. When the worst hole in the hull was investigated, it was found that the ship had had some luck. A large piece of coral had jammed itself into the gap, helping seal it. If that large piece of coral had fallen out, the hole in the ship would have been much larger. And so the crew went about repairing the damage to Endeavour. As that occurred, other men went about fishing and hunting. Attempts to kill an adult kangaroo proved impossible. But the big turtles in the harbour, which could weigh hundreds of pounds each, were greatly welcomed. At the same time, Cook dispatched the ship's master, Robert Molyneux, in one of the smaller boats into the maze of reefs to try and scout a way through them. As for the Aborigines, there was little interaction, although they were seen often. The only real chance for a problem was when some of the natives tried to steal some of the turtles the British had caught. The turtles were a delicacy to the Aborigines. Anyhow, the natives started some fires at the British camp, apparently to distract them so they could steal the turtles. One of the ship's pigs would be killed in the dust-up, but not much else. Cook fired his musket, which was filled with grape shot, to chase off the thieves. Cook and some others chased the men to deter them from bothering them any further. And in an interesting twist, they caught them, and the Aborigines calmly set aside their weapons and sat down around a fire, inviting the British to join them. Cook did so, handing out some gifts to the men, and then departed. This is one of those types of behaviors that perplex Cook and the crew. They didn't understand how the native people's attitudes and moods could shift so rapidly. Another note I'll mention is that Cook ordered all the food that was prepared to be equally shared amongst the crew, officers, and supernumeraries. For him, this was a way to bring people together in a common cause and perhaps smooth over some of the resentments and squabbles that had built up over the past two years. Endeavour would finally be repaired and ready to sail on July 20th. For the next three weeks, Cook would move slowly through the maze of uncharted reefs. After what the men had just endured, no one complained about Cook's slow and deliberate pace. A key strategy was to sail the pinnace ahead of Endeavour, sounding out the depth and location of many of the underwater dangers, and blazing a clear channel ahead. And then on August 13th, Endeavour would emerge from the reefs, open water ahead of them. They had cleared the Great Barrier Reef. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. Next time, we'll complete the first voyage of James Cook, talk a bit about its legacy, and get him prepared for a second voyage. I will make one comment about today's episode, and that it is here that Cook really became an explorer. When he goes to Tahiti, and even in search of Terra Australis, he's following very specific orders. But in New Zealand and then Australia, we see a man seizing the opportunity to seek out the places that no European had ever been. And the cool thing was that Cook wasn't just sailing along, taking a few snapshots and moving on. He was mapping and charting. His charts of New Zealand, while not perfect, are incredibly accurate and would be used for generations. It's all pretty cool, and it's part of why Cook is so admired in the world of exploration. Anyhow, that is it for today. 
I want to say thank you to the show's financial supporters. It really means a lot to me that people want to be a part of this podcast. This includes great folks such as Dan, Eileen, Eric, Christopher, Elizabeth, Donnell, Robert, Rudy, Andrew, Benjamin, Catherine, Chris, Cameron, Craig, Eamon, George, Peter, Philip, Ralph, and so many, many others. What you do makes this show possible. So to everyone out there, thank you for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other innovative and thought-provoking shows, such as My History Can Beat Up Your Politics and Pulse of the Planet. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.